Today's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who will ask him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. And I greet you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you've had a great Christmas season, great New Year. And as we kick off this New Year, we're going to begin the New Year with a series on the power of prayer. So let me, by God's grace, dive right in to what uh, was just read. So just think with me for just a moment, because Jesus is responding to a request from one of his disciples that goes like this, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, if you will, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Remember, these are Jewish men they knew something about prayer. They, they grew up in the synagogue. They grew up hearing prayer. They grew up participating in prayer. They were prayed over their meals. They, they did all the kinds of things related to prayer that most Jewish people would do in that era. But note this, they obviously saw something in the prayer life of Jesus that was different. They noted that Jesus looked forward to prayer. They noticed that Jesus enjoyed prayer. They noticed that Jesus repeatedly pulled away to pray. And they noticed, particularly Luke, the transformative power that flowed out of the life of Jesus when he would come down from times of spending time with the Father in prayer. And so it's not a wonder that we see in the text that the disciples, as they observed Jesus, would make the request, Lord, 
Obviously, you have something we don't. Teach us to pray. So what we're going to do today and in the weeks to come is that we're going to look together as the body of Christ keys at the keys of an empowered prayer life. And so we're going to begin today by first noting how all of this is contextualized. First, note the offer of friendship with God. Now, let's read verses 5 through 8 again. Let's just review that for a moment. Brad read it for us, but Jesus said this, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his imprudence, because of this persistency, if you'll pardon my transliteration, because you're bugging me, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, this passage is one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted passages in all of the New Testament. Because there are some people that read this story and they reason this way. Okay, the friend is bothered and pestered. Therefore, bother, pester God until he gives in. Let us pray. And that is a misunderstanding of the passage. We see in the passage, if you were bold enough to be persistent with your need with a friend when you have a need, how much more does friendship with God leverage and cultivate the heart environment for powerful answers to prayer? Because If a friend will get up in the middle of the night to give you bread when you have need because you're bothering him, then wouldn't God freely give us our daily bread? Particularly when the context of the passage is the Lord's Prayer, and in the Lord's Prayer we're told and even commanded to ask God for our daily bread. We're not just talking to anybody. We're talking to the one who has absolute authority and sovereignty that the scripture declares that for the believer has not only all authority, but is approachable for the believer. And what that tells us is that God actually delights in those who are bold enough to pour their heart out to God. And so what we recognize based upon this scripture, as well as a preponderance of other passages, that God delights in those as believers who would come before him and be and serve in a way to be as invasive as you desire in making requests to God. But let us note the following. A healthy prayer life with God is characterized by healthy friendship with God. I want to invite you to think about that for a moment. Because when Jesus uses the illustration of what friendship is, or excuse me, what friendship is with a neighbor, and the neighbor is only relenting because they're bothered, friendship with God means something totally different. Friendship with God is rooted in a heart that says, God, I'm willing to move with you. Now, in John 15, 4, Jesus said the following, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, as I quote that passage of scripture, I want to validate Don't get caught up in some kind of works righteousness with that. I want to remind us all, we are saved by faith in the person of Christ alone, by faith alone. And we're not saved by works. We're going to circle back to that in just a moment because it's relevant to the text. But 
for believers, we see this all over the scripture, there are conditions to knowing the riches of God's blessing as we grow in our sanctification. So, so here's, here's the deal. In, in functioning as a friend of God, surrender is really important because what, what's happening in a, in a surrendered life for a believer is that we're not asking God to move with us. We're instead saying, God, how can I move with you? And that's the very tone that Jesus sets when he covers the Lord's prayer and how to pray before he gets into the parable of this friend. Remember, Jesus is inviting us to move with God. Hold God in holiness. Pray with the priority of the manifestation of not my will being done, the individual, but God's will being done, the kingdom coming, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. He's affirming that we walk in a posture of relying on the mercy of God, recognizing that we're in need of forgiveness of our own sins because we're taught to pray, forgive us of our trespasses. But we're also taught as we move with God to be quick to forgive those who offend us as we forgive those who trespass against us, those that betray us, those that may gossip about us, those that may uh, do things that are not proper and it's offensive to us, but to operate in a spirit where we extend mercy to other people. And my point in all of that is that that's what friendship with God looks like. Is it God, I will move with you, even though it's hard at times. Lord, I will move with you. And loved ones, what this tells us is that many people miss the power of prayer because they miss the heart behind prayer. Listen to what Methodist evangelist E. Stanley Jones once said about this. He said, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch a hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning of my will to the will of God. And, and loved ones, another way of saying that is that the heart behind prayer is friendship with God, fellowship with God, love for God, moving with God. As my friend David Platt once said, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. Because that's what a friend does. And so a part of what we see in this emergence of an empowered prayer life is the offer of friendship with God. But that's not all that we see. We see that in being a friend of God, in moving with God, and having a heart of surrender, we see this picture of the availability of God to the believer. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 9. And I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Can I just submit to you, too good to be true, too true to ignore. And so, Jesus, it's obvious by virtue of this phraseology, Jesus is inviting us to be constant in prayer, to pray with passion and persistence. And it can be seen in two ways in this one verse. One, in the Greek language, it's in what we would call the present imperative, which means keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. And then you see in that phraseology a progression of intensity, and that is asking and seeking and knocking. John Stott once said, 
the following, and I quote, he said, Richard Glover suggests that a child, if his mother is near invisible, ask. If she is neither, he seeks. While if she is inaccessible in her room, he knocks. And so we see this picture of persistency. We're to keep on asking, we're to keep on seeking, we're to keep on knocking. And Jesus uses this metaphorical language to teach us how passionately we should persist in prayer. Now, I, I shared the following with um, my small group here in Memphis uh, not long ago, but I, I want to illustrate something. Here, here we go. Many of you have heard of a man named Charles Finney. Finney founded Oberlin College, and he was one of the evangelists that in one of America's great awakenings, he was one of God's key instruments in that, in his preaching and proclamation. Well, Finney was asked one Sunday to preach on the topic of family at Oberlin College. About a thousand people gathered in the auditorium. And when Finney crawled into the pulpit, right before he began to preach, he hit his knees and he began to weep in prayer. And people couldn't at first determine what exactly was happening. Was Finney having a nervous breakdown or was Finney crying out to God in prayer? And you can imagine in an auditorium of a thousand people or even 12 for that matter, the awkward tension that filled the room as the speaker of the day is on his knees weeping in prayer. And after a considerable amount of time, Finney got up and he went to the, stood in the pulpit and he shared the following. He said, loved ones, I, and this is a transliteration, I don't know that he said loved ones, but he spoke to the people and he said, I cannot preach on the topic of God and family. I have five adult children and none of them know Jesus Christ. None of them. Are walking with the Lord. And from that day forward, Finney began to give himself more fully in prayer for his five unreached children. Here's what I want you to hear. All five of them came to know Jesus Christ. But listen closely. Not in his lifetime. Now I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that when we're asking and seeking and knocking, be mindful that God is hearing. Whatever we pray according to his will, he hears us. It's not his will that anyone should perish. And so we're, we're mindful as we ask and seek and knock and the things that align with the heart of God, that he is listening, he is hearing, he's responsive, but be mindful that God is going to move in God's time. And that's important for us as believers, particularly when Jesus gives this kind of instruction. But he also gives this kind of affirmation, verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. This is why Don Miller once said, a day without prayer is a wasted day because of the opportunities that we have to see God shift things on earth as his people pray. Notice that Jesus is declaring his availability, the availability of God through prayer for the believer. But loved ones, also take note not only of the availability of God, but take note of the nature of God in prayer for the believer. 
Now, when I refer to the nature, I'm going to lift out one word for us to look at for a few moments related to prayer, and it's the word Father. Father. Now, here's what I want to propose for you to think about with, together, for us to think about together this morning. Here it is. Only a Christian can authentically call God Father. Only a Christian can do that. Now, here's something interesting. In the Old Testament, we see about 15 references to God as Father. But then, when we get to the New Testament, the, the term Father for God, for the believer, explodes with exponential implications. 165 times, Jesus addresses God as Father. Uh, in those 165 times, 164 of those times is when he's in the presence of believers, in the presence of disciples. And that should tell us something, that, that points to a reality. As in the words of John R. Stott, a Christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble, but to the folly of worry and especially to the confidence that God is our Father. Now, once again, I don't expect you to remember everything that is taught from the pulpit of Christ Church. I, I, I'm a realist. I get that, all right? But let me review something we covered during our Advent series in John chapter 1. To as many as received him, to as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Here's why it's important that we validate that scripture. There's a lot of misunderstanding around this because you will hear people, you will see people write, you will hear people say, and people will even say from pulpits in America phrases like this, we are all God's children. All of humanity, we're all God's children. And I would submit to you, and I want you to have the mind of a Berean to search the scriptures for yourselves to see if what your pastor is saying is true. That is not biblical. A biblical revelation is this. The only children that God declares are those who have been adopted into his family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. Can somebody say amen? Because there's some of you in this room, you already know, you've searched the scriptures, you know that that's true. Now, am I trying to be doctrinal and just, you know, really get off on doctrine and try to prove a point. No, 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 no. No, that's not my heart. I'm trying to help you. I want you to understand the significance of God being your father, you being adopted into his family, of putting your faith in Christ and God birthing his new life in you, sister or brother. Notice these words from J.I. Packer. He once wrote, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption as children of God, as I paraphrase Packer's words. Now imagine this. Think about this. All the names for God in the Bible, Yahweh, Mighty God, 
Those of you in a one-year Bible reading plan, you, you know you come across this phrase, Lord of Heaven's armies, that's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. Elohim. I mean, all of these phrases. And yet we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, and Jesus is declaring something oh, that's special for the Christian. He's Father. Now, loved ones, whether you realize it or not, that reality has everything to do with our heritage as Methodist Christians. You see, a man named John Wesley, you know, most of you know the story. When he had come to America and failed as a missionary, he went back to England and on Aldersgate Street, where he wrote, heard the words of Luther's preface to Romans being read, where the description is given, I'm not saved by my righteousness, I'm saved by the righteousness of Jesus through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Wesley turned to Christ, and that's when he wrote the words in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warm. Romans 8, his spirit witnessed with my spirit that now I am a child of God. But let me tell you about John Wesley's life before Aldersgate, before he came to know Christ, because sometimes we hear testimonies, and, and it's all the bad things that a person did before coming to Christ. Let me describe John Wesley's life before he came to know Christ. He served the poor. He was committed to serious study of the Bible. He met with the Holy Club at Oxford University. He was an honor graduate of Oxford University. He was committed to a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. He regularly took the sacraments of Holy Communion. He served those in prison and he served orphans. He attended Sunday worship every Sunday as well as many times during the week in church gatherings. He gave generous offerings to the church. He lived an exemplary moral life. And he was a missionary to the Indians in Georgia. Yet, when John Wesley came back to England, Wesley wrote in his journal after his conversion at Aldersgate Street, oh, loved one, pay a close attention to the terminology. He said, I went to America to convert others, but I was myself never converted to God. I had even the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. Not yet authentically calling God Father. May, loved ones, may you, may we know God as Father. You say, Pastor Paul, what's the relevancy to the text? Well, the relevancy to the text is that twice in this segment of Scripture, as Jesus is teaching us about prayer, he teaches us the understanding of the fatherhood of God. And that is when the Lord's prayer begins, it begins, oh, our Father, our Father. But as we get to verse 11, he then does this comparison contrast type of teaching when he says this, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. And what he's illustrating beautifully is the availability of God to the believer, the beauty of his nature for the believer. And then he goes on to illustrate what it looks like in practical terms. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Oh. Now church, when Jesus makes a statement like that, He's not only reflecting the goodness of the heart of the Father, but He's also speaking to the depth of our need. I once had a small group leader 
Actually, it was a small group in a church I pastored years ago. One of their leaders came to me and said, Paul, we've got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, there's a guy in our small group, and he took his Bible, and he threw it in the air, and it landed, and he said this, I can't do this. I can't do it. And I listened. I said, is there anything more you want to add? He goes, no, but it's, it was disruptive. I said, well, I think that was probably one of the most orthodox things said in a small group in this, the history of this church. Because you can't follow Jesus in your own power. You need the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the images of the Holy Spirit is anointing with oil. And, and if you study the life of a shepherd, one of the things that a shepherd would do with sheep is regularly take oil and anoint the head of a sheep. And the reason is that it minimizes the potential of picking up diseases from other sheep. Sheep sometimes butt heads. And when they do, they spread diseases. In addition to that, uh, sheep get all kinds of diseases around the eyes. And, and so what the shepherd does regularly is put fresh oil on the heads of the sheep. You know, when the sheep don't have fresh oil, that oil will begin to coagulate. And when it coagulates, it actually then attracts flies again and parasites. You need fresh oil. You need fresh anointing. Jesus knows you need the freshness of the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit regularly. And that's why he makes this loving declaration in this passage, loved ones. And so I just simply say, behold the offer of friendship with God. Behold the availability of God in prayer. Behold the nature of God, fatherhood of God, the loving fatherhood of God available to you as a believer. Therefore, let us say with the disciples, oh Lord, teach us to pray. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we pray that the life-transforming truths that you imparted to the disciples 2,000 years ago would be imparted to us, mind, heart, soul, God, every dimension of our being, oh God, pierce our hearts. Lord, sanctify our minds and teach us to pray. And we pray it in the name and power of Jesus. Amen.